0: Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. We're in the midst of such a digital world, an age of so many screens, so much data, information. It's said that over just this past year, more unique information has been generated than the previous 5,000 years. And such a rate of change and overload. It's not only external to us, more and more medical experts in neurology and how our brains operate are saying our brains are physically changing, being rewired because of our exposure to all those screens, games, search engines, even social networking. One of the many other things it's all doing is reducing the empathy we feel for each other in our society. One of these experts is a world leader in this arena. She's Baroness Susan Greenfield, Professor of Synaptic Pharmacology at Oxford University in the UK. And I'm so honoured to say that she joins us on Open House later this year. She's coming to Australia in November. Baroness Professor Susan Greenfield, welcome to <laughs> Open House.
1: Hello, Link. please call me Susan. It's, it's so nice to hear an Aussie accent, I have to say. <laughs> great nostalgia for Australia. Good and I'm much looking forward to coming out in November.
0: Yeah, I bet you are. Thanks so much yeah. for your time. Can I begin by asking you to take us through how all this data, our screen lives,
1: are <laughs> physically
0: changing our brains? What have you been able to detect physically?
1: Well, I think the first thing to get straight, Lee, is that living changes your brain. This is why we're different from goldfish, for example, is because we can occupy more ecological niches than any other species on the planet because what the human brain is exquisitely and superlatively adapted to do is to learn. So wherever you're placed, you will adapt to the environment and flourish and thrive in it. And we've always been doing this. So living and the culture and the country and the era and the place where you are uh, born, is actually literally in any event going to leave its mark on your brain. Now, all neuroscientists know this. It's something called plasticity. It doesn't mean to say your brain is made of plastic. It just means that it's highly dynamic. And other animals do it, but we do it better than any other species. We don't run fast or see, well, we're not strong. But by golly, we learn, and we learn very well. Now, this means, and this is the issue, it's not so much that the cyber world or the cyber culture, if you like, is for the first time changing the brain in a way um, that no other um, experience in life has done. Okay. Um, it's changing it, but I think in a, a way that will actually give rise to a new form of adaption. A new, this is a new type of environment. So we've always changed to the environment we're born in, but this time the environment is a different one. It's unprecedented. <laughs> so the change is, as always happens, but the end result is going to be an unprecedented one because we're adapting a world that's very different from any other world human beings have ever had
0: and the rate of change is unprecedented
1: as you're growing especially in the first few years of life the Jesuits had a great saying give me a child until he is seven and I will give you the man um, we all know that the young brain is much more unconditional in what it accepts than the older brain because what happens is as you're growing and Uh, your brain cell connections are forming, and that's what makes you so special. It's not the number of brain cells you have. You're born with a fair complement of them, pretty much. But what makes you different, what makes you, even if you're a clone, that's an identical twin, different from your twin, is that your connections between your brain cells are going to be unique to you. No one's ever had the pattern of connections that you have because these are updated and strengthened and weakened and reshaped um, by your individual experiences, which literally leave their mark on your brain. And so when you're very young, these connections are forming, and uh, it's a kind of one-way street. As you get older, you start to evaluate the world in terms of what's happened before, the checks and balances of your previous experiences. So an example I like to give is if um, a grown-up comes in dressed up, say, came into your recording studio dressed up as a ghost, I don't think you'd be very frightened by that. You would understand that it was a grown-up dressed up as a ghost. If a little child saw a grown-up dressed up as a ghost going woo-woo-woo, they might well be very, very frightened because they couldn't understand. They'd take it at face value, what they'd see is what they'd get, and therefore it'd be something potentially life-threatening or frightening to them so they'd they'd react accordingly. So connections enable you to personalise the world, to understand it, um, to see through the face value, if you like, beyond the raw senses, to have a meaning that's unique to you, whether it's your mother's face, whether it's your wedding ring, uh, whether it's someone dressed up as a ghost, whether it's a metaphor. Connections enable you um, to understand the world and so on. And and this happens as you are growing up. And the young brain, therefore, while these connections are forming, is particularly vulnerable to whatever comes in.
0: Yes. What's the evidence that you have about how long and how much longer and longer we're spending in front of our screens and devices, especially those aged, say, 13 to 17?
1: Yeah, there's um, lots of statistics. And, of course, as you must realise, each survey is constrained by specific sector they're looking at or a specific nationality, and much will depend on the culture, the agenda, the age and so on of the kids. But one in particular that I I happen to know by heart is from the States about a year or two ago, where they looked at kids, as you say, between 13 and 17, and over half of them them were spending at least three to four hours a day recreationally in front of a screen, at least. And and what wired me there was the 30-plus. It wasn't the 30, it was the 30-plus hours a week these kids are doing this. And whatever you say, whatever the merits, and there are some of the cyber culture and so on, whatever one says, what no one can deny is that every hour you're sitting in front of a screen, and that's an hour not beating the sun on your face, not giving someone a hug, not walking along a beach. And even if um, one could argue, quote, and if people do, um, for many things that come from the screen, I think it's very hard to defend the large amount of time people spend in front of the screen. Now, it's as though... It's become an end rather than a means. In the old days, technology, whether it was the printing press and books, whether it was a car, whether it was a fridge, um, those things, those technologies were a means to an end. It was to help help you understand life or to make life better for you in the three-dimensional world. But now it seems for the first time ever, this cyber culture is so pervasive that it's become an end in and of itself. People will spend large amounts of time and money to sit and play a computer game for hours on end on their own. And that, that concerns me because, as I say, I think technology is very powerful. I think the cyber world should be harnessed and could be harnessed to do wonderful things. But at the moment, it's become a sort of dead end, an end in itself.
0: If this rate of change continues to race ahead and yeah. these changes physically continue to percolate in our brain, how will we be different as people as a result
1: of well, those this changes? Well, an interesting one, and already you can start to see trends um, for example, there was a study by Michigan State University showing a decline in empathy over the last 30 years that has accelerated in the last 10, Please. which, of course, will coincide with the rise of the so-called digital native. That's someone who's very, very at home, a younger person who's very at home with computers. Now, the first thing someone would say is, OK, that's just the trend. How do you know it's caused by sitting in front of a computer? Now, this is similar in a way to what happened in the 1950s when people like Sir Richard Dole that, look, this is interesting. There's a trend here of people, increased numbers of people dying of cancer, and an increase in the number of people smoking. And of course, the tobacco companies fought long and hard, and there was great hostility saying that this wasn't causal, that smoking wasn't bad for you, and so on. And you had to do, well, Sir Richard Dong and his team had to do lots of epidemiology to prove the causal link. So at the moment, we're seeing trends, and I would call governments or funding bodies. Please let's have some epidemiology. You know, please let's go in now and see if one is causing the other, because that's what um, one would need to do next.
0: Yes. What is it doing, therefore, to our person-to-person contact and the whole notion of
1: relationships? Yeah. Again, again, one looks at trends, and I know someone would say this isn't scientific, but I would challenge them back and say, okay, you tell me what experiment we should do that will show like a litmus test or a pregnancy test, you know, that it's good or bad, that it's doing this or that. And I think that it is in the nature of science. You have to do lots of indirect work. You have to look at trends. Um, you unpack the problem. You can't do one simple little experiment that everyone will suddenly buy into. That it, it, Science doesn't, doesn't work like that. It iterates and we, I say, zigzag forward by doing lots of different aspects of a problem. And I think looking at trends is a very important thing to do. So one of the trends that we're seeing is the rise of bullying for example now i know that people we've always had the playground bully we've always had the, the bully in the office my fear is that it's bringing up the worst in human nature we've, we've we've always sadly had these aspects to us but there was a recent case i don't know if you heard it in australia um in our olympics we have someone called Daly, who's a brilliant diver a young, yes. a young yes. man who's a young diver, and uh he lost his father um a year or two ago and this Person um, texted him saying your father would be ashamed of you because he didn't win a gold. And that kind of thing, the sort of way people talk to each other and behave to each other would normally be constrained by face-to-face interaction. You wouldn't do that. You know, uh, yes, sadly, this is an aspect of human nature, one of the sad (laughs) aspects and shabbier aspects of our nature. But I think this Wild West Forum where everything can happen, you're not accountable, you're sanitized, you can be anonymized if you like, you can say what you like, I think that really is um, actually opening up the type of communication between people that is not we shouldn't be very proud of, as well as how it impacts on your identity and, and how you see yourself. If your identity is constructed externally by the views of others, I think that will make you actually paradoxically feel less robust and less confident as a person. And there's a very good book by someone called Sherry Turkle at MIT called Alone Together, where she argues very persuasively that the more connected you are, the more isolated you
0: actually feel. On Open House, we're with Baroness Professor Susan Greenfield. Susan, to her Aussie mates. Professor of Synaptic Pharmacology at Oxford University. Susan, you make a point that there are three arenas where we should be concerned about this, social networking, video games, and search engines. Can I get you to take us through your concerns about each of those three?
1: and actually flagging that we need to deconstruct and look at the different problems. And let's start first with social networking sites and empathy and identity. How one defines oneself up until now has not been by the number of friends you have. And there's even a rather, to my mind, pernicious site in the States called Clout that is spelled with a K, K K-L-O-U-T. And there they actually give you a number as to how important you are and to how many connections you have. And um, you can see where this is leading. I mean, this notion that you have to be an important person, that you have to have certain attributes in order to be valuable as a person. Um, it was captured very well a while ago by a psychologist called Oliver James who wrote a book called Affluenza, saying the more we're concerned what others think of us and seeing ourselves as a commodity, the less happy we will be. And I fear that with identity in social networking terms, that especially agents, better by sites like clout, people are going to be incessantly anxious. And when I talk to younger people, they are. They, they feel they have to keep going on Facebook, otherwise they'll be left out, they'll be left behind. They have to portray themselves as airbrushed and beautiful and successful with lots of boyfriends or girlfriends going to parties all the time. And this is so inordinately sad if as you're painting this image that's not really you, you're actually sadly um, atrophying inside because you've got no one that you really feel will understand you and, and cares about you. So um, it's been shown that... This kind of issue arises when people make friends for the first time on social networking sites. If you have an old friend and you're following them on on the social networking sites, that's very different from, as always, with technology and how you use it. And if this has become your whole way of life, Uh if your Facebook profile is more important than anything else to you, then I think there's a problem. For example, I saw a a clip of two girls. And for some reason, this this stood in my mind. Um, On the BBC, they are in Hollywood. And uh, they were in the car, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And, you know, it's an old car for those younger listeners. It's a a famous old car (laughs) that featured in a movie. And uh, these girls were in, these teenagers were inside. She she, Shitty bang, bang. And the the interviewer said, how do you feel sitting inside this very famous old car? And they said, it's Facebook worthy. Not I feel this or I feel that, but it's Facebook worthy was the first thing they said. Now, if you live your life, doing things that you think will be Facebook worthy that will gain you, Um, approval um, and high status in the eyes of others then again I know we've always done this to a certain extent but I think this is giving us a much more unrestricted and unconstrained playground for doing that. So that's my first worry with social networking sites and I think also that does link in to a decline in empathy because if when you're very young you're not learning how to communicate with people we know that looking people in the eye of course physical contact interpreting body language and voice tone are all way more essential than just words, which constitutes about 10% of interaction when you meet someone. So if all the time you're communicating just via the sanitized offline version of a screen where you just write anything, if you're not learning how to look someone in the eye and when to hug them and where to hug them and so on, then you're not going to be so good at those things, and that means it's going to be even more aversive if you have to do it because you'll be unpracticed at it, and that means you'll avoid doing it, and so you'll end up i fear for the younger generation communicating either via texting or, or social networking sites and indeed we're now seeing this there's a famous study that just came out in the uk that people are texting more than phoning and even within offices rather than talk to each other people will text each other but anyway so that's social networking mm. very briefly then onto video gaming um there's various things that are emerging but of course one swallow doesn't make a summer but there is at least in about 10% seems to be the number that surfaces in the research papers. About 10% are addicted and you'd be addicted to drugs. And there was a recent um, brain scan study showing that um, in people that were playing compulsive video games that an area of their brain was enlarged rather like in compulsive gamblers. Um, and we know this area of the brain is one that releases a chemical called dopamine. And we know that dopamine is indeed linked to addiction and reward processes in the brain. Now, again, this is all very early, and we do need to do more research, but it should make us think and talk about it. That's why I'm so delighted to do this now, because I think the more we can foment public debate, there's no easy answers, there's no simple um, and quick fix to this, but the more we can talk about it and face up to it, the more we can actually benefit from it rather than just suffer from it and then cry foul when it's too late. So other issues with video gaming is low-grade aggression. Not so much you're going to go out and kill someone, but if you then bump into someone in the corridor, you'll, instead of very politely saying, excuse me, excuse me, like we certainly do in the UK, you'll say, who do you think you're pushing, you know, and and be slightly hostile. So there's that as well. There's also a link with attention deficit disorder where there's a very strong relationship between people that have attentional problems and people playing video games. And one idea is that by playing video games, they're kind of self-medicating because if when you're playing video games, you're releasing this chemical dopamine, that is at the heart of the drug Ritalin. So it could be almost if you're trying to give yourself more dopamine to help. And also, I think with video games, the other problem is it's a very dangerous lesson to learn that actions don't have consequences. If you're a small kid or a teenager and you're spending five to ten hours a day doing this, then I think your boundary with reality might be more blurred. Finally, um, the search engines, and again, wonderful, wonderful for people, academics like me, who can at a touch of a button get facts up, that information isn't knowledge, and the whole issue is that you need to join up the dots, and whilst those of us who have the huge privilege of an education and a more conventional upbringing um, know how to have a conceptual framework, what is rubbish, what might not be rubbish, what's important to us, how something fits into a certain context, If no-one has provided you with a framework, a conceptual framework, then you'll just ricochet saying yuck and wow to different facts. You won't be able to place them in context so easily, which means they won't have any value and you won't be able to judge one from another. So search engines could be hugely powerful, but in and of themselves they don't give you knowledge. Only an inspired teacher and a good education can do that. That's
0: a great point to make. So Mm. as one who's been at the cutting edge of tracking these changes Mm. and raising these questions... Have you got practical ways forward, advice for us and how we handle all the data and uh, the time we spend
1: in front of the screens? (laughs) I'm writing a book about this at the moment, so I've been thinking about this a lot. Did I rule the world, which of course would make most people horrified, (laughs) um, there's five steps I think that we should do. And the first is surveys. Now, what we don't know, and what I would love to know, I'd love it formally, is what parents and teachers and indeed the kids themselves feel about all this because whenever I give talks, even professional talks in the private sector, it's amazing how these slick media people or these captains of industry suddenly they're mouth and they're suddenly parents saying, I'm really worried about my kid. He's fifteen, he spends all this time in his bedroom on his Xbox or whatever and I think this should be formalised or enshrined some way into some kind of formal database. You know yes. it's not for me to stand up and be the conscience of the voice of any anyone. I'm just an ordinary citizen, 21st century, like everyone is. And those people should also have a voice, as I've been privileged to do, like in this interview. So I think I'd like to see surveys, first of all. The next thing is epidemiology. As I've mentioned, I think that what we really need is to see, is there a link between decline in empathy and the growth of social networking sites, for example? Is there a link between increased aggression and playing video games? You know, we, we really do need to see very closely what the links are, as well as, incidentally, anything good or positive that may be coming out so that that can be harnessed. Third, I'd like to see more research, and of course I would say this, into the basic neuroscience, like this chemical dopamine and how it's linked to reward and addiction and and indeed to screen-based activities, because it will never be enough. There will never be a definitive time when something is proven and everyone buys into it. And the more research we can do, the more nuanced it can be, the more we can start to see what might be possible and make predictions and so on. So I think that that is really important. Fourthly, I'd like to see design of novel software. Now, this sounds strange for someone who's been ranting against the cyber world, but I don't rant against it. I just see it to power and respect it and think it'll be used. And if we see there are deficits, let's say, in linking actions and consequences and therefore in how you take risks, if we see there's deficiencies in empathy or attention spans, I'm sure it's not beyond the wit of man or indeed of woman to design novel software that could help compensate or offset those, those issues. Totally. Yeah. So um, I would love to work with software designers on how one might design novel types of cyber activities that help people <clears throat> regain some of those, those perceived deficiencies. And finally, when all that's done, I think we ought to really fairly square up to the politicians and say, look, we've got to really rethink our education policy. We've really got to decide what we want to deliver to our kids, what kind of people we want to be. And most of all, we need to shape an environment for them that's more attractive than the two dimensional one of only two senses that constitutes a screen. Because why is it that stimulating only hearing and vision and sitting in front of two dimensions is more exciting than walking along the beach? <laughs> you know, why? Good point. And, and until we can not so much police them sitting in front of a screen, but actually give them a much more fulfilling alternative, and that's our job, then you can't blame them. So I think we need to really sit down, eventually, in the light of what people think and want, in the light of the science and the studies, in the light of novel software, and then really think about how we can craft a 21st century environment that brings out the best in our young people.
0: Yeah. Susan, I've been reading and uh, listening to your material for years now, and I've been so impressed, mm. and um, I think you've got okay. such an important voice for this era and our next. So yeah. I'm honoured that you've joined us on Open House. and <laughs> Hope I do. hope you enjoy your trip to Australia in November. I
1: will. I'm coming in the summer, aren't I? after right? you... oh. all. <laughs> we have no summer in England. That's so
0: yeah. horrible. <laughs> Good time to come. Thank you so yeah, much I indeed. what
1: the light looks like. Okay, well, thank you very much for your
0: time. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.